0: Let's pray before we get into God's word. Amen. Yeah, Lord, we do pray that as we um, come under your word this morning, Lord, we pray that you would open afresh this morning our eyes to what it is that you want to say to us through this passage, Lord. As we look at your teaching on prayer, Lord, as you guide us as to how we pray, Lord, we pray that you would really give us fresh insight, Lord. We pray that you would speak through Riley and would you reveal your truth to each one of us individually. We thank you, Lord. Amen. Can you hear me all right? All right. Okay, uh, as Johannes said, that my name is Riley and uh, I'm married to Stefan and we have a little girl named Annie. That you will probably see running around in sparkles or something Um, but uh, yeah so it's it's great to be with you guys this morning I love serving in this way although it is always a bit intimidating to me Um, I do enjoy being able to to share what God is teaching me through his word Um, because that's really what all preaching is is that uh, a good a faithful preacher is one that comes under the word themselves and just shares what God is doing in their lives and so that's what I hope to do today and this morning we're back in the Sermon on the Mount after a little bit of a, a, a break and I've been spending a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount as we have been preaching through it and to be perfectly honest I have found it, it quite challenging and it's it's challenging because Jesus is giving us a vision uh, for living that is quite countercultural and quite uncomfortable, actually. And it's challenging because it is forcing me to ask the question Does my relationship with Jesus make a difference in my life? Do I live my life in a way that looks no different than the world around me? Or does there's something that my relationship with Jesus changes me? And, and actually, it goes further than what we do, right? So, in fact, we have learned throughout the series that God is far more concerned about our heart and the posture of our heart and the transformation of our heart. He has called us to a deeper righteousness, to a true righteousness, and the righteousness that Jesus speaks about starts with a transformed heart and motives and then works its way out into our actions. And Jesus is inviting us through the Sermon on the Mount into a new way of life, into a life in the kingdom of heaven with him, in communion with him. Because ultimately, the Sermon on the Mount is is looking at how do we live this life in communion with our God we are calling the series the life of discipleship and what we have seen is that the life of discipleship is not a passive life where we come to church and we learn a few things in our heads and we can recite a few things and we may even believe the right things but then but actually what it is is that it's the life of discipleship completely reorients our life our hearts and our actions around the person and work of Jesus. And Ali defined discipleship so well when he said the life of discipleship is a radical lifestyle of repentance and participation in God's active goodness where right actions and obedience to the rule of the king flow from a heart aligned with his and over the last few sermons, as we have been examining Jesus' words, we have been holding up our own lives and hearts and seeing if we align with his heart, with what he is revealing about life in the kingdom. And today we come to actually the center of the Sermon on the Mount. And I actually mean the literal center. This is the very middle of the Sermon on the Mount of the chapters five, six, and seven. And you'll know it as the Lord's Prayer. And this little section, it almost seems separate to the rest, like a, like a parenthesis. There's been lots of instruction in the sense of of, of life and how to live it and, and, and your heart posture. And it fits into the example of Jesus is using about prayer, and his greater emphasis on worshiping with the right motives, the motives to be rewarded by God and not by men. But, but not quite, it almost seems like its own little aside and that's why we're treating it that way. Um, because if you notice, when Johannes was preaching, there was like this gap, you know? And, uh, and that was on purpose, he didn't just forget. Um, and it's, the Lord's Prayer is almost like a little pause to reorient yourself, for Jesus to help us to see um, really what is the Christian life. And I think that it serves a particular purpose. And although Jesus is teaching us how to pray, I think he's doing something more than that. And like much of the Sermon on the Mount, this is so familiar to us. When I describe my background and my growing up, I always say that I was partially churched. You know, we, when I was young, we would go often to a very traditional church. And to be honest, not much stuck, but the Lord's Prayer did. Even when I, before I came to faith, I could, I could recite the Lord's Prayer. But to be honest, it was just kind of a mindless exercise. And maybe that's true for you, is that you know the Lord's Prayer and you can recite it, But there's not much significance in it and it was interesting when I started researching for this sermon I came across some incredible quotes regarding the Lord's Prayer J.I. Packer said the Lord's Prayer is a key to the whole business of living what it means to be a Christian is nowhere clearer than here and another author, sorry, I read it somewhere in my research, I wrote it down, and forgot to write who it was, so I apologize for that, but he says, the Lord's Prayer is not just a prayer. It's a vision for the life in Christ's in-breaking kingdom. So have you ever thought of the Lord's Prayer that way? I think many of us that, that maybe grew up in traditional backgrounds, we can, we can write it off as something dead and rote. But God put it there purposefully. And so my hope and what I've been praying for today is that we will come with fresh eyes and open hearts, that we would come to see what this prayer is teaching us about the life of discipleship. Because remember, it's part of something bigger. We often take it out of its context and think it's just, you know, this this is a prayer. But it's actually giving us eyes to see the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's teaching us about communion with God in his kingdom. And so I just want to pray that for us right now. So Lord, I pray that we would come with fresh eyes. Father, that this wouldn't be so familiar that we kind of uh, let our mind wander to all the other things that we have to do. But Jesus, would you open us to what you want to speak to us today. Lord, would you help us to see what is true about your life in your kingdom? What it is the Christian life all about. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me read it. So we're in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. By the way, this is the only time I've ever preached that I've actually, I have the whole text memorized. It's never happened, and I have a feeling it will never happen again. But I just wanted to point that out. So, Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So today I'm not going to actually take this line by line and look at what each of these petitions mean. Actually, Bates did that two years ago, and uh, I would actually really highly recommend that preach. I thought it was excellent, so I don't want to redo the same thing. Because we find this prayer tucked into the center of the Sermon on the Mount, I believe it gives us truths concerning the life of discipleship and truths that help us actually read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus is teaching us to pray, he is also teaching us about life in the kingdom. And so I want to highlight and look at three things the Lord's Prayer teaches us and helps us to understand about the life of discipleship. And you guys are really lucky because I came up with more. But since last week went so long, I figured I shouldn't do the same to you this week. Although it does set a precedent for us to go to almost 12. So, But the first one I want to look at concerns identity. But I don't want to start in the place that we often start when we talk about identity. Because often our first question is, who are we? And that is a very important question. But that's not where we should start. The question we need to start with is who is God? Because who God is will determine who we are. We need to establish God's identity first. Because if God, we know that God is creator, but if God is only creator, are we just creations to be toyed with and, you know, moved around? And if God is just a ruler, are we only subjects to his whim and whatever, however he wants to rule? But the answer to this question also helps us understand the nature of the Sermon on the Mount. Again, is if God is just a ruler of a kingdom, and these are our commands to obey him or be punished or is it something more than that the first line of the prayer answers the question who is God in verse 9 it says our father in heaven and this reveals us to us that primarily God is father and not just some other person's father but he's our father and that makes us his children And we often take it for granted that God of the universe, the creator of the heavens and earth, has chosen to reveal himself to us as Father. You know, when we talk of the three persons of the Trinity, right, one of the the great doctrines of our faith, we speak of Father, Son, and Spirit. So before time began, before God created anything, he was the Father to the Son. And because of our relationship to this, to Jesus, we are now sons and daughters of God, right? In John 1, it says, yet to all who did receive him, meaning Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so we have an intimate relationship with the God of the heavens and the earth, the creator and ruler of all. And in this series, you have heard that one of the major themes of the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. What's interesting because another central theme and a central idea of the Sermon on the Mount is actually revealing God as Father. I want you to some time to go and read through the, the Sermon on the Mount and just circle how many times the word Father is there. Matthew, in general, speaks of the fatherhood of God more than Mark and Luke combined. And the largest concentrations of references to God as Father is here in these three chapters. Almost half of the the references in all of Matthew is in these three chapters. Less than half, but, but fairly close. And there's something pivotal and beautiful that I think Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples, to us, That God in heaven, the one who rules and reigns over his kingdom, does so as a father. That he writes, that he gives us these words, because although it's Jesus speaking, we also know that Jesus says, I don't say anything that my father doesn't tell me to speak. So these are God, God our father's instructions to us. And so how we read them and how we receive them changes when we know that. So why does this change everything? Because a father rules with love and care for his children. And so when we read some of these passages that we have preached through in the series, and they seem hard, and, and really counter to what some of our natural inclinations are. Love your enemies, like how is that? It's not, it's foreign to all of us, and it's hard. But we can know and trust that they come from a father who loves us and knows what is actually good for us. You know, there's, there's times all, there's things that happen all the time that Siofen tells Annie to do something or a way of doing something. And she moans about it, but it comes from his father's heart for her that he wants what's best for her, that he cares for her. And he is not perfect, it's close, but not. And he doesn't know everything, but God our Father does. It also changes everything because a father is patient with his children's growth and learning, right? You know, have you ever seen a a little kid that they're just kind of figuring life out and they're kind of wobbling around when they first start to walk? And you never see a father when they fall on their face, ridicule, not a good father, ridicule and abandon them for failing. And so as we're reading the Sermon on the Mount, And we're examining our lives against what it says. And there's something in us that knows that we're failing in this. And we're falling all over the place. We can know our father doesn't ridicule us. And he doesn't shake his fist at us. He comes alongside of us. He holds us. You know, I love that picture of, you know, a father's walking behind and he's holding. And who's really, like, steadying the ship there? The father is. And so, because of that, our obedience also comes from a place of security, not a need to earn anything. You know, we've talking over and over. Sometimes we we come to this Sermon on the Mount, and it's almost like we use it as a as a gauge of are we in or are we out. And y'all, you know, we need to measure our lives against it, but we come into obedience is actually, it's a place of security, right? Our identity and value is secure. So as we read these things and we think, ah, I'm failing in this, we can come to our Father because He loves us and He cares for us, and we can work towards obedience because we're secure in His love. We don't have to earn it because we are children, not because of what we have done or anything that we will do, but because of who we belong to, and we belong to our Father in Heaven. J.I. Packer says, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. So, when we pray, Our Father in Heaven, we are reminding ourselves that when we come to the Sermon on the Mount or any of Scripture, we read it through the lens of instructions from a good father that loves and cares for us and who desires to commune with us. And the next significant lesson that the Lord's Prayer teaches us about, the life of discipleship, is the orientation of our life. Okay, that's not there. Um, I, I was going to point to it because, yeah, is there's something... Um, That I wrestled with you know when you when you're a preacher you uh, when you preach you want to get your words right and I couldn't quite get this one right so it's the orientation of your life or you know what should what is the desire and longing of our hearts but hopefully as I unpack it it'll it'll make a little bit more sense and and the next four lines of the Lord's Prayer really answers this what should be the orientation of our heart it says hallowed be your name Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And really, in essence, these petitions are asking the same thing. They're the desire for God's reign and rule to become a full reality. And this is our Father's desire. This is what God has been doing throughout human history. And what is amazing is that Jesus is instructing us to ask something that he is in the process of doing and we know will be done. But he wants his children to be part of it. He wants his children's lives to be oriented, our hearts to be oriented to the same thing, the same desires that he has. And this prayer orients our hearts in a way that gives us eyes to see how our Father in heaven is bringing his kingdom to understand his will and to join in his work and it also gives us a longing for the consummation of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is the subject that Jesus spoke most about. But so often we, we pray this but really don't know what we are praying for. So what is the kingdom and what actually are we longing for? So one way I've heard the kingdom of heaven explained is to think of it as God's redemptive presence coming down from heaven to earth. Through Jesus, we experience the kingdom, but only in part now. When Jesus returns, we will experience God's good and perfect rule at all times. We will experience life as it was meant to be lived. When we pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are looking forward to that day when all will be well. We are saying, Come, Lord Jesus, make all things right. Because the reality is that we can grow numb to the problems around us. And we can grow numb that this is actually not the way it's supposed to be. We shake our heads and we read the news, and, ah, oh, that's terrible but do we ever say no this is not the way it's supposed to be this is not the way that God intended it and so we pray this to bring that longing to align ourselves with what God is doing and with what God desires and so I want to highlight three things we are anticipating we are anticipating that the world around us will be made right right I cannot name all, all that's wrong in this world, right? We just need to walk out the door. And sometimes we just need to look at our own bodies, our own health. You know, even people that aren't, wouldn't consider themselves Christians won't argue that there are things that are wrong in the world around us. That's one thing that I think that we can all agree on. Right? We see wars and poverty, crime, death, and disease. But these are not as God, our good God, designed the world to be. Sin is apparent in all, all around us. So we pray that all would be right with the world around us, but we also pray that we would be made whole. The last two sermons in this series have examined the idea of a deeper righteousness about Jesus' teaching what true righteousness looks like. And I don't know about you, but I recognize myself often as the hypocrite that Jesus points to and that he speaks of. I often look to the praise of man. It's hard to admit, but I can worship God, I can serve God through the gifts that he has given me to earn validation and to be seen by others. And when Sharon shared a few weeks ago about needing to love others, even our enemies, I recognize my own sin as well. I know that I don't do that. In fact, sometimes I struggle to even love decently the people that I say that I love. And anger I see that in my life quite often and so I see myself and I recognize that I don't just need the kingdom to come out there I need the kingdom to come here in my own heart I feel the frustration of battling with the same sin I do see victory in my life and I see the transformative work of Jesus but I know that I won't be rid of my battle with sin until the day jesus returns and so when jesus is leading us to pray for the kingdom to come we are also praying and longing for a day that we will be fully perfect like our father is perfect the day that sin will no longer be present in us in me And finally, I want to highlight one more thing we are praying and desiring when we pray your kingdom come. And that is the day that we will be present with our Father in heaven forever. We often focus on the world being made right again and us being made whole. And those are wonderful things to look forward to. But the great prize the great reward of the kingdom coming that Jesus is speaking about is actually being in the presence of our good and glorious Father forever. And one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture gives us a beautiful picture of this. It's Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will be there accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And here it is, guys. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more they will need no light of lamp or sun for the lord god will be their light and they will reign forever and ever so the life of discipleship is characterized by a longing by a longing to see jesus make all things right both out there in the world and in us we await a time with longing that all that is in heaven will be on earth and we will commune with our father in heaven for all of eternity and what's amazing about that longing is that as we pray for it this longing and waiting isn't passive there's something that god does in us with that longing that aligns us with him and then we have eyes to see how god is working around us and we get to come alongside people and we get to be salt and light of the kingdom as nathan so helpfully unpacked for us a few weeks ago and the final truth that i want to highlight about what the, the sermon on, or the what the lord's prayer shows us has to do with our posture towards our father in heaven it reminds us that the life of discipleship is a life of dependency and really, the whole prayer is an expression of dependence. Philip Yancey has to say, says this about prayer prayer is a declaration of dependence upon God. And I know that's true in my life because often I like to say that if I'm, that I'm, if I, when I'm, I find myself not praying, that I'm just busy or this and that. But in reality, it's often an indicator that I am trying to live life out of my own strength and security. That I want to be my own God. I want to be the determiner of how my life works out. And it brings us back to the idea of God as father and our identity as children. I, uh, I found that I can often be okay with this idea as long as I get to be an adult child, right? Because an adult child interacts with their parents or their father much different right? I, I like to, to have my own independence, and I always like to know that my father is close at hand if it's needed. Or, you know, some advice if I need some advice that I can then weigh and take. But this is quite different than, I, than the picture that Jesus gives us. So Jesus, Jesus later in Matthew says, you know, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And one of the things Jesus is getting at, I believe, is is the utter dependence children have on their parents. We are to be like little children, dependent on our Father in heaven. And verses 11 through 13 actually orient our posture to dependence as we ask God to provide for every area of our life. So from verse 11, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So these three requests actually cover all of our need in all of life. So verse 11, give us this day our daily bread deals with our material need. And actually, the next section of the Sermon on the Mount will deal more with this. Verse 12, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. This highlights our necessity for our Father to intervene in our spiritual needs. Asking us reminds us of our status as forgiven sinners, and it doesn't leave any room for self-righteousness. Because without the intervention of Jesus, we would all be outside of the Of the kingdom of God. None of us are able to stand before God on our own account. We are in desperate need of changed hearts. And admitting your spiritual need of forgiveness opens the door to your life where through the power of the Spirit you are transformed. But you have to express your need, you have to admit that you might have done something wrong against the father in heaven and verse 13 and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil this reminds us of our need for protection the it expresses our vulnerability and weaknesses to the temptations and trappings that are all around us it admits that we are unable to stand morally upright without the protection and help of our father in heaven As we read the Sermon on the Mount and the vision of the life in the kingdom, some of us might feel quite defeated by the life Jesus is calling us to live, and others of us might feel burdened to just try harder out of our own strength. And this petition reminds us that our Father is able and willing through Jesus to lead us to the greater righteousness he is calling us to if we would come to him with our need. This speaks against those of us that want to bare-knuckle our Christianity, that think, yes, I was forgiven and I had grace from the Father to enter the kingdom, but now I've got to show that I'm good enough. I lived a lot of my life that way, thinking, yes, I get grace at salvation, but this, now I've got to prove to God that he's, he's done well. And this says No. Actually, we need him. We are unable to live the life that God has called us to without his protection, without his his transformative work in our life. And through these petitions for God to meet us in our need, Jesus is inviting us to recognize and experience our Father in Heaven's care for us, his children. It reorients us to a disposition of humility and faith. And it, isn't that what Jesus commended to us in the Beatitudes that started the Sermon on the Mount? And as I, I wrap up, I want to revisit the quote I shared at the beginning. The Lord's Prayer is a key to the whole business of living. What it means to be a Christian is nowhere clearer than here. So to be a Christian means that you have a father in heaven. And to be a Christian means that we have a longing for the kingdom come to come. We have a longing and a desire to see and we are anxiously anticipating seeing all made right again. And to be a Christian means that we are dependent on our Father in heaven. And so I hope you see that this little prayer, the most famous prayer in history, tucked in the center of the Sermon on the Mount, is doing more than teaching us to pray. It's definitely doing that. And I would commend to you that if you do not normally pray the Lord's Prayer, to put it to do that. That you could. Be mindful of who God is and who you are and what is important to God. But he is, through this prayer, God is also reorienting our hearts towards important truths about the life of discipleship. Because that's a great mystery of prayer. You know, often people say, well, why do we pray if God's sovereign? And there's, there's a mystery to it. Yes, our prayer is effective in the world. In some mysterious way, but it's also prayer, one of prayer's great works is actually us. There's something that does us, that does in us to align us to our father's heart. So as we close, I actually want us to pray this together. But let's not let this be an exercise in just reciting something you have memorized. But let it remind you that you have a Father in heaven. Let it stir in you a longing for the fulfillment of the coming kingdom. And let it humble you in light of your utter dependence. So you'll see on the screen that there I I have put uh, one here because um, we all kind of know different versions. And so if you're comfortable with whatever version to pray, that's fine. But uh, we do, we'll have one up here, I think. Is it? Okay, cool. And um, so let's stand together and pray. Okay. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father, thank you. Jesus, thank you that you've instructed us how to pray. May this change us. May you have given us fresh eyes to see the life that you've called us to. Thank you, Jesus, that you have made it all possible through your death, your life, death, and resurrection. In your precious son's name, amen. Thank you guys, and I hope you have a great week.